Our word for today is Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4. We started this look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 last week. We, we'll see uh, that for a military, this is boot camp. For a football team, this is uh, spring training. Uh, for the body of Christ, this would be a retreat where we get what we need to go and make a difference in our world. Uh, when you, we go through this, I want you to look at it from a big picture a little bit and ask yourself some questions from, from a high altitude looking down at 5, 6, and 7. Uh, what is Jesus doing? What is He saying? What would be the results in believers' lives if we indeed practice what Jesus said for us to do? What would be the changes? What would be our personal life be like if we followed these teachings, uh, I think it, if you get the, if you if you can begin to process that, I think it will help you first of all to draw into this and to see the need for every single one of us uh, to apply what Jesus has to say here because of the benefits and because of verse one, and we talked about verses one and two last week, but we'll review for a moment. Because of the crowds, he taught this lesson. So there's a connection between these teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to the, the condition of the crowd, to what they're going through. He says, seeing the crowds, we know through Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. And so he saw their need. He saw their brokenness. He saw their religious issues. I mean, there was a real problem with religion, with the Jewish nation during this time religiously. Um, what, what was laid down to practice had become, uh, had become difficult. It had become a burden. It had become beyond the ability of people to maintain. Uh, that's why Jesus told all the disciples and all the people, listen, come to me, my burden is is." Light in my in my way, my way is easy, because it was a burden. They have added so many rules, so many regulations, and we all know today that if we are led by rules and if we have to just face do everything to jump through the hoops of things, life becomes complicated. It becomes unsatisfying to us. Uh, when I think about all the rules that people have, and you apply it to our relationship with Christ, I'm so thankful that we are not saved by works. Because I don't know if any of us could be saved if we were saved by works, because man would always add something, change it, take it away, and, and we would never have any kind of ability to go through with that. And so I'm thankful we're saved by faith through grace and what Christ has done for us. But Jesus saw the crowds, and when He saw the crowds, He knew what to do. He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down... His disciples came to Him. He had a place and a time that He sat down, and His disciples came to Him, and the disciples were a small group. And that's the way that Jesus accomplishes His purpose in the world. He trains us in small groups. He trains us when we come together, and we open the Word together, we do life together, we pray together, and we help each other. We're accountable to one another. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He saw the crowd. He saw the need. He sees His disciples, the most unlikely group of warriors you'd ever seen, 
the, the, it, it was the broken ones. It was the ones that had already been passed over by rabbis. Now, because of these 12 men did not have a rabbi, that they were under their, their leadership, that's the reason why they just jumped on Jesus when he asked them to come follow him, because finally a rabbi for Peter. Nobody wanted Peter to be in their small group. You know, nobody wanted Matthew to be in their small group. Nobody wanted Bartholomew to be in their small group. No, no one wanted uh, these men, that nobody wanted James to be in their small group because they weren't good enough. They wouldn't make the rabbi look good. And so uh, when Jesus calls them, they immediately follow him because it was a chance to be in a rabbi's group and, and to follow the rabbi and learn from the rabbi. And so Jesus chose the most unlikely bunch to bring about the gospel and take the gospel to the whole world. And, and that was his cause and his purpose. And so he gathers the disciples around him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying. And so here's what he taught them. We'll look at verses 3 and 4 this morning. First of all, in verses 1 through uh, 11, you see the same word over and over again. The word is blessed. Blessed. Blessed are. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And, and then he says why they're blessed, what they're doing to receive this state of blessing. The word blessed means a happiness, but it's just different than being happy. You know, I'm going to go home today, and if it indeed rains, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to enjoy that. I may strip on down to the skivvies and go lay in the front yard and just enjoy the rain. There we go. I'm going to be happy about that. But, but that happiness is based on what? It's based on it raining. If it doesn't rain, I'm not going to be happy. That's conditional happiness. Most of our happiness, and frankly, all man-made happiness is based on conditions. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Oh, think about this for a moment. He is saying this word blessed here, this, this state of being, this attitude of heart and mind, this blessed position is a contentment that is present in any circumstance. A contentment that is present in any circumstance. Man, if you could bottle that up, put it in a pill... You could sell that, couldn't you? If you will take this pill, you will be happy, you will be at peace, you will be content regardless of your circumstances. Man, that would be a pill that you could get on 2 o'clock in the morning and people would be buying that on that infomercial. They'd want that. If you really got a pill and, and, and we'd get that pill and say, hey, y'all, if you'll take this pill, I, there, it, this pill is magical. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens in your life, you can be content. Jesus is telling us, 
He's telling the disciples very up front. He knows the problems they're going to have. He knows the crisis they're going to face. He knows the situations that they're going to encounter. And he says to them, if, and obviously Jesus knows, if he's going to have a mighty army, a bunch of warriors, disciples that are really going to make a difference in the lives of the crowd, he's got to have the people understanding that they can have a contentment that absolutely supersedes all circumstances because it's not going to be easy it's not going to be roses it's not going to be just everything is just hunky-dory all the way through he knew his disciples are going to have problems and guess what we are going to have problems good people get sick good people get cancer good people lose their jobs Good people have relational problems. Good people face all kinds of crises. Good people have marriage challenges, right? We got problems. We all got problems. One of us in here doesn't have problems. And we can't allow the problems to get in the way of the purpose of Christ. Our problems get in the way of the purpose of Christ. If we have insecurity issues, that gets in the way of the purpose of Christ. If we have problems in relationship, that gets in the way. Whatever we spend more time with, whatever problem we deal with more than we deal with living for Christ, that's a problem. And so Jesus is laying down here in the first 12 verses here for us what needs to happen in her lives, in our lives, so that as disciples, followers of Jesus, we can have a happiness that is beyond circumstances. Imagine what that would be like for you. Imagine what that would be like if no matter what is happening, you're satisfied. You're satisfied. When bad things are happening, you know that Jesus is Lord and, and, and He is at work in us, and so you're okay. That's an amazing thing. No matter what happens, no matter, you know, bad things make us dissatisfied, but we also know that a good life makes us dissatisfied in the human form without the Spirit at work in our lives. What do wealthy people want? More money, right? What drives wealthy people usually? What drives wealthy people to make more? They're dissatisfied with what they have. They need a bigger something. They need a bigger car, bigger truck, bigger job, bigger business, bigger house, bigger ranch, bigger hunting lease, bigger this, better that, bigger this, better that. Right? It's got to be, they're never ever satisfied with what they have. What do the people who are broke need? They always say, man, if I could just be, if I could just make more money, I would be happy. It's not true. Satisfaction doesn't come through money. I mean, let's face it, some of the wealthiest people in the world that you have heard of and know of, they're not satisfied with their life. Money doesn't make you satisfied. Everything going good doesn't make you satisfied. Everything bad doesn't, doesn't always dissatisfy. It's, it's crazy because the Lord has something for us. Mick Jagger really needed this information. You know what I'm talking about? I can't get no satisfaction. Amen. All right, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit.
This isn't referring to poverty. It's not referring to no money. But poor in spirit. This verse, Jesus teaches us that when we realize that we are sinners, that we have all sinned, and we have all sinned against God, we are blessed. Because the result is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when you realize, when you acknowledge that you can't save yourself, you can't make yourself right with God, you don't deserve to be right with God, you don't deserve heaven, that you can't earn a right standing with God, there is a blessed position that comes from recognizing that we have all sinned, that we are sinners, that we are spiritually bankrupt. And it's the opposite of being full of self. It's being empty of self. We're broken because of our sin. We need a Savior. And Jesus said, it's wonderful to realize that we can't save ourselves. It's wonderful to realize that without Jesus, we have nothing. It's wonderful to realize, and He's telling His troops, He's telling His team, he, He's telling the very ones that are, are signed to begin this wonderful ministry of carrying the gospel to their world. And He's saying to them, you first got to start with being poor in spirit. Because if you lose sight of your salvation and how your salvation comes to be, you're not going to be any good to me, Jesus says. You see, the best believers are people that recognize that they are sinners separated from God and they have experienced something that they could not do for themselves. They've experienced the wonderful gift of eternal life from the Lord Jesus. And it says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Things are going to get difficult. Things are going to be challenging. Things are going to be so difficult on you that there are going to be times that all you've got is you're going to heaven. All you've got is you're going to heaven. There's nothing good. I can't think about anything good happening in my life. I'm under persecution. I'm struggling. I've got this illness. I've got this problem. There doesn't seem to be any solution. But I'm going to remain faithful and serve Jesus because I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Because 1 John 5.13 says that He's written these things to those who believe in Him so they will know that you have eternal life. I, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out. i got issues. i got problems. But guess what? I'm going to heaven. I'm going to keep on serving Jesus regardless of what happens because I'm going to heaven. I'm going to hang in there. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to just be faithful and keep on showing up and, and doing what Jesus says to do when it may appear that nobody else is doing that. Why? Because I'm going to heaven. And so that understanding that we're going to heaven obviously was was of utmost importance to Jesus because that's His very first thing that He talks about. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second thing He says here in verse 4, blessed, contentment that has nothing to do with circumstances. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is not talking about grieving the loss of a loved one. This is talking about mourning over your own sin. This is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul understood that there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Repentance is you hear the call of God and you turn about face 180 degrees. Repent. You repent of your sin. You change your ways. You've had enough. If this is the issue, the sin that you're struggling with, you're going the other way. And as far as you know, at that particular time, in that time of repentance, you really mean business. You may have to repent time and time and time again, but you're going to repent because you grieve the fact that you have sinned. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so the ones that are comforted are those that recognize their sin and they grieve over their sin. This mourning leads to true repentance. This, this mourning that Jesus is talking about is just not mourning because you get caught, right? It's just not mourning because you're exposed. It's not mourning because your sin comes to light. I mean, it is mourning the fact that you have sinned against God and you grieve. The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and your response is, is a grieving repentance. It's a sorrow that leads to repentance. Jesus says the folks that have really repented, the folks that acknowledge that their sin was the culprit, the problem, the issue, the struggle, the very thing that put Jesus on the cross, and they have an understanding of that, and they grieve deep in their soul, they're comforted. You probably have seen this, I've seen this a lot in life, is when we're not really, not really willing to come clean, we, we're not comforted. We're not comforted. If you have relational issues, marriage issues, you have troubles in your family, you have troubles with the sin, until you really get honest with yourself and you really grieve the fact that you are sinning against God, there's no comfort. There's just upheaval. There's just anxiousness. There's angst. There's, there's stress. There's pressure. There's conflict in our lives. But when we, can, when we repent because we have an anguish in our heart over our sin, we mourn our sin. We are set free. And we're comforted. I don't know about you, but when I finally was, was seeing the light and I finally realized that my selfishness and, and my way of life and my sin was making me absolutely miserable. When I got on my knees beside my bed and said, Lord, I've had enough. Whatever you say, I'll do it. I believe, I trust, I know, God, that I've sinned against you. I have been wrong over and over, and I need to get right with you. I need your forgiveness. There's nothing I can offer you, God. All I can do is say to you, I am absolutely sorry. And as far as I know right now, I'm not going to do it again. I'm moving forward. I'm repenting. When, when I got off my knees, there, there was a release of pain and burden and wait on me. And, and I saw myself differently. I saw others differently. I saw the Lord Jesus differently. 
I no longer saw God as always the one that makes things hard on me. I no longer saw God. He's always trying to punish me. He's always in the way. He's wanting me to do things that I'm not going to really enjoy and all that kind of stuff that I was struggling with. But when I repented, man, I was comforted immediately. Now, the way you know whether or not you have genuinely repented of your sin is are you comforted? Is the burden released? Is the weight released? If you haven't had that experience, you haven't really repented. And God knows your heart. He knows exactly how you are. He knows what you're holding back on. He knows that you're being dishonest with yourself and dishonest with God. Now, what does Jesus want here? He wants His disciples to be comforted. He wants His disciples to be unfettered. You can't be unfettered if you're managing sin, you can't be unfettered. If you can't be just managing your sin so that, that your sin is socially acceptable in the world that you live in, and you've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, and you're straddling that fence, you're not the disciple that's going to go into the hard places and share Christ. You're not the disciple that's going to persevere no matter what. You're not the kind of disciple that's going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus regardless of the circumstances. And so this is boot camp for us. The beginning steps. The beginning steps to developing disciples, to building disciples, is for them to recognize they're poor in spirit and they mourn over their sin and they repent. Because that's what lays the foundation for mighty men and women of the Lord. Mighty men and women of the Lord. You're comforted. You're set free. You're burdened no longer. It's not like it used to be. And something else about repenting. You know that you've genuinely repented when you have this mindset. You ain't going back to that old life. You ain't going to live like that anymore. You're not going to, to uh, face those struggles in those battles. But you're going to be different from now on. You're not going back and experience that. You're not going to go back and experience that. Now, turn your Bible to Luke chapter 7 for a moment. I want to close with this. Because I believe that what this story talks about is basically uh, what Jesus is going after here. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. In this story, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he goes into the Pharisee's house and he reclines at the table. He sat down there on the floor and he got ready for the dinner. And while he's in the house waiting for dinner to begin, a woman of the city, we don't know what kind of sinner she was, but it says she was a sinner. Adulterer, prostitute, we don't know what she was. Most likely it was something like that. And when she learned that Jesus was there in the house, she went to the Pharisee's house 
And she didn't ask for permission to go in. Nowhere in here do we see her asking for permission to go in. I don't reckon she even knocked on the door. I think she just slipped on in. Maybe there was a crowd out there. Maybe it was difficult to process the situation. But we don't have any record uh, of, of this taking place. And she comes in and she has brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Perfume type stuff. Medicinal purpose to it. Made your feet feel better. It was a good massage that was going to take place there. And, and walking around in them, in them uh, sandals all day long. And them hippie shoes, see that great Jesus wore hippie shoes? I think if we're going to be like Jesus, we ought to wear sandals every single day of our life. But we're, we're stuck with the, the jail cell of our shoes in that Western culture. And she stands behind him, and she's weeping. Man, you know what she's doing? She's grieving her sin. She's mourning. She realizes that she is poor in spirit. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head. She kisses his feet and anointing them with the ointment. The Pharisee sees that, the one that invited Jesus into his house, and he thinks to himself. Now, it's really not smart to think to yourself with Jesus. Because he knows, right? But he doesn't know that yet. And so he thinks to yourself, he probably thinks he's going to get by with this. And he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Because no good religious dude is going to let a sinful woman touch him. It's no prophet's going to do that. She's a sinner. She's no good. She doesn't even belong in my house. She's no good. She's a woman of the city. And Jesus answered his thoughts. I love this. He answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon is such a knucklehead, he says, why don't you just go ahead and say it, teacher? I mean, when Jesus comes, he says, hey, I got something I want to tell you. You don't want to hear it right, in this situation. But Simon's full of himself. Simon does not recognize that, that he is poor in spirit. He has not grieved over his sin. He's full of himself. Say it, teacher. Go ahead. You got something to say to me? Lay it all out there. I can handle it. That's what Simon's saying. And he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered, he's smart enough to answer this, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to them, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, Jesus was a perfect man, but his feet were stinky. If you walked in sandals all day out in the desert and the, in there's no cement roads, right? Your feet are dirty. There's just no way around that. She's been kissing the man's feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. You know what Jesus says here in verse 47? I tell you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And, and the way you know they're forgiven is because she loves a lot. Now, the people who are forgiven of little, they love little. You know what Jesus is saying to Simon? Simon, you understand, the best Christians, the best disciples, the best church members, the most effective ambassador of Christ are people who have sinned a lot. Now, the truth of the matter is, it's not really sinned a lot that we need to think about here but it's people that know they're poor in spirit and they know that any sin they've committed separates them from God, that all have sinned. And so from that understanding, we've all sinned a lot. Now, what does Jesus want from His disciples? He wants them to be people that love a lot. If you're going to enlist a football team, you want football players. You want people who are going to work hard. You want people who aren't going to quit. You want to have people who are going to train. If you want to have military people, you've got to have people who are going to follow orders, who are going to do their job, who are going to do whatever is required of them. They're going to pay any price they've got to pay for the mission. What does Jesus want from His disciples? Exactly the same. But in His world, here's what the most powerful thing is, is that you love a lot. The best church members are people who know that they are sinners, who know they have sinned against God, and they recognize they have nothing to offer, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they're excited about it because they know they couldn't get themselves. It's a free gift. And those who have mourned over their sin because they recognize they have been forgiven of the sin that will send them to hell. And they are just tickety-boo of the fact that God is giving them eternal life and salvation and they're going to heaven. They're going to love a lot. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is He's developing people who are going to love a lot. Man, Satan will tell you, you have nothing to offer Jesus because you've sinned a lot. He's a liar. Jesus says, bring me them sinners. Top draft picks are sinners. The ones that Jesus wants the most in His band of brothers that would take out the gospel of the world are, are the prostitutes, are the adulterers, are the alcoholics, are the drug addicts, are the thieves, are the fighters all the people who are full of themselves and they're full of pride and, and they're full of anger and they're full of bitterness because when He gets through with them, they 
are going to love a lot. Do you love a lot? Do you love a lot? Are you the kind of disciple that God will use to change the crowd? Help us, Father, to adapt. Help us to change. Help us to grow. And may we learn from what your word says today. Thank you for many prayers that have been answered today. We look forward to hearing about it, Lord. We know, Father, you are powerful. We know that you can do everything. We know that nothing is impossible with you. And we rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, let's take up an offering.